Thank you for joining us today. We'll continue our study of the Gospel of Luke. We'll be discussing Israel's rejection of Jesus and previous rejection of God. So if you'll open up your Bibles to the Gospel of Luke chapter 4, we'll begin our lesson. So why don't we begin in prayer? Father in heaven, thank you again for this group and just the incredible work you're doing in and through this ministry, not only here with us, but far outside of this room and this telephone call, people listening in. It is changing lives. I'm getting emails and phone calls and what have you, and it's just amazing to watch the way that you work in each of our lives. I thank you so much for your word and your ministry and the presence of the Holy Spirit helping each one of us every day. Also, thank you for the presence of the Holy Spirit to guide our discussion today. I ask that you continue to speak through me, speak through those who speak up. I certainly don't want to mislead anyone. So, Father, I just ask that you guide our discussions through the Holy Spirit. Thank you for all your blessings that you continue to pour out on all of us. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so we are still in Luke chapter 4. We made it about halfway last time. I hope that we will finish up Luke chapter 4 today. For those of you who missed last time, let me just give a brief summary of where we are in the Gospel of Luke. Jesus has been born. He's now been baptized by John the Baptist. He is now full of the Holy Spirit as the Holy Spirit descended at his baptism, and he's now full of the Holy Spirit. We can see that in chapter 4, verse 1. He was then tempted. We talked about Satan tempting him in the wilderness, and of course, he did not fall for any of that, and we talked about that last time. And so then after he finished with that, he returned to Galilee. You can see in verse 14, in the power of the Spirit. So the Holy Spirit is with him. And he began teaching in their synagogues in verse 15. And then he went to Nazareth, which is his hometown. He returned there. And again, he entered the synagogue on the Sabbath. And he stood up to read. And he was handed the book of the prophet Isaiah. Remember, there weren't verses and chapters back then. And he turns right to where the prophecy of his coming is there. In fact, we talked about this in depth where he's reading in Isaiah 61. He reads and basically says the Holy Spirit is upon him. And he's been anointed to preach the gospel to the poor and to proclaim the release of the captives, so to bring about salvation, to set free sinners. And yet we see in verse 20, he closed the book and he gave it back to the attendant. And we went over and looked at Isaiah, where he was reading from in 61, and he stopped reading before the verse was even finished. And it's like, well, gosh, why didn't he finish reading? He just stopped. And it's because if you go look, the second part, is about his second coming. And so he didn't need to talk about his second coming yet. He was only talking about his first coming. And he basically then says, you see down in verse 21, he says, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. So he's basically saying, I am the Messiah. And I am fulfilling what Isaiah wrote in chapter 61, verses 1 through 2, at least the first half of verse 2. <laughs> left off the end part because that's not what he was fulfilling at that time. And so, of course, then we read on, he says it's been fulfilled in verse 22. You can see everybody was speaking well of him. So initially there was this positive reaction, but then we see fairly quickly a shift and we see people start saying, but wait a minute, 
how can this be the Messiah? Is this not Joseph's son? They just could not accept what Jesus was preaching about, which was repentance. They needed to turn. It was only the spiritually bankrupt who were going to be able to inherit the kingdom and have salvation. Their self-righteousness, they could not grasp this. It's like, wait a minute, we're Abraham's blood. We're God's chosen people. Look at all this outward religious stuff we do. What do you mean that we're spiritually bankrupt? They just couldn't grasp this at all. And so Jesus says to them in verse 24, he says, Truly I say to you, no prophet is welcome in his hometown. So he's in his hometown, and there's the people of Nazareth beginning to reject him. And he could see that their hearts were hardened. They were asking him to do more miracles, and he knew no amount of miracles was going to change their heart, even though they were asking for more miracles. This is where we left off last time. And so now Jesus is going to tell them two stories from the Old Testament. And these are two stories that we're going to go look at that the people of Israel cannot stand these two stories. They cannot stand them because it's basically two stories about the way the people of Israel were sinning against God, worshiping idols, doing all kinds of things that were against God and how God then blessed Gentiles back in the Old Testament times. Remember, the Jewish people, they cannot stand Gentiles, okay? They just cannot stand them. They think there's no way Gentiles can be going to heaven. It's all about us. So they can't stand these stories. So that's why I want to spend some time today, and we didn't finish last time because I knew there's no way I could cover these stories last time. So I want you to go over to 1 Kings. So where is 1 Kings? Go over to the middle of your Old Testament. You'll be in Psalms and Proverbs. And keep going back over to the left from there. And you'll see Chronicles and you'll get to Kings. And if you go too far, you'll get to Samuel and Judges and you've gone too far. So that's where Kings are. Why don't you go to 1 Kings chapter 17. And before I start reading... Let me introduce some of the people that we're talking about. So Elijah is going to be mentioned here. He was a great prophet for Israel at that time. The king that we're going to read about here, it's King Ahab. He was king of Israel. Let me show you just a little bit about him. He was not a good king. Look in verse 29 of chapter 16. You see now Ahab became king over Israel. So that's to show that he was king. Verse 30, he did evil in the sight of the Lord more than all who were before him. So he was a really evil king, really bad king. Look down in 31, he married Jezebel, Queen Jezebel, who was the daughter of the king of Sidon. And we're going to see why that's important here in a minute. Just kind of put that off to the side. Sidon are Gentiles. The area of Sidon are Gentiles. King Ahab, king of Israel, marries the daughter of a Gentile king. And what's going to happen? They're going to bring in the worship of pagans into Israel because that's what Queen Jezebel did. She is a very evil, evil queen. There's stories about her also in the Old Testament. So she's from Sidon. And look what happens in 31. Then they went to serve Baal and worship him. So who's Baal? Baal was the most powerful of all the gods with a little g. He was the fertility god. He was, as I said, considered the most powerful in pagan worship. He was also considered the sun god and the storm god. 
Baal worship, it included prostitution. Even at some points, it included killing and sacrificing of the firstborn. It's wicked. And yet here we have the king of Israel bringing this Baal worship to Israel. Not good. And you even see in verse 32, so he, being King Ahab, erected an altar for Baal, which he built in Samaria. You see that? He also made the Asherah, that is the goddess of the sea, and also the mother of Baal in pagan worship. So you can see, look at the end of verse 33. Thus King Ahab did more to provoke the Lord God of Israel than all the kings of Israel who were before him. We got a picture of what's going on here? All right. Now, Elijah was trying to get King Ahab to turn from this pagan worship trying really, really hard. And that's where we're going to enter the story in chapter 17. So here comes Elijah. He's the prophet, the Tishbite. It just means he's from Tishbe, which is now what's present day Jordan. So he says to King Ahab, as the Lord, the God of Israel lives before whom I stand, surely there shall be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word. So he's saying there's going to be this drought that's going to come. And the word of the Lord came to him, being Elijah, saying, Go away from here. He's telling Elijah, Go away and turn eastward and hide yourself by the brook Cherith, which is east of the Jordan. And it shall be that you shall drink of the brook, and I have commanded the ravens to provide for you there. So the Lord's telling Elijah to leave. He's been working on King Ahab. Now King Ahab is going to have a bounty on his head. And so God is protecting Elijah, telling him, you need to get away from Ahab. He's going to try to kill you, and I'll provide for you. I'll provide water, and he says, I commanded the ravens to provide for you there. Verse 5, so he went, this is Elijah, and did according to the word of the Lord, and he went and lived by the brook of Cherith, which is east of the Jordan. And the ravens brought him bread and meat in the morning, and bread and meat in the evening, and he would drink from the brook. So God's taking care of him. Verse 7, And it happened after a while that the brook dried up, because there was no rain in the land. Then the word of the Lord came to Elijah, saying, Arise, go to Zarephath, which belongs to Sidon. Look, he's telling him to go over to this area in Sidon, which is Gentile area, which is where Queen Jezebel came from. Her father was the king of this area. And now God's telling him, go over there and stay there. Behold, I have commanded a widow there to provide for you. So he's saying, go over there to this Gentile area, and I'm going to send a widow to come take care of you. So Elijah arose. He's being obedient. God says, go do this. Yes, sir, I'm on my way. He goes to Zarephath, and he came to the gate of the city, and behold, a widow was there gathering sticks. And he called to her and said, Please get me a little water in a jar that I may drink. And as she was going to get it, he called to her and said, Please bring me a piece of bread in your hand. So now he says, While you're at it, while you're getting me some water, bring me some of that bread. Verse 12, But she said, As the Lord your God lives. So do you see that? She's a Gentile. But she believes in the God of Israel. So she says, As the Lord your God lives, I have no bread, only a handful of flour in the bowl and a little oil in the jar. And behold, I'm gathering a few sticks that I may go in and prepare for me and my son that we may eat and die. So she's very poor. 
And she's basically saying, I've only got enough. This is our last meal. We're going to go eat our last meal, and then we're going to die because we've got nothing, which means I don't have anything for you. Then Elijah said to her, Do not fear. Go, do as you have said, but make me a little bread cake from it first and bring it out to me. And afterward, you may make one for yourself and for your son. So now, look, Elijah is not being selfish. It may sound like he's being selfish. That's not what he's doing here. He's calling her to have faith and trust in God. Because look what he says in verse 14. For thus says the Lord God of Israel. Remember, she was saying, you're God. So she knows the Lord God of Israel. He's saying, this is what the Lord God of Israel is saying. The bowl of flour shall not be exhausted, nor shall the jar of oil be empty until the day that the Lord sends rain on the face of the earth. So she believed. She went and did according to the word of Elijah, and she and he and her household ate for many days. The bowl of flour was not exhausted, nor did the jar of oil become empty, according to the word of the Lord, which he spoke through Elijah. Now it came about after these things that the son of the woman, and he says the mistress of the house, so she has no husband, he's passed away or he's not there, So her son became sick, and his sickness was so severe that there was no breath left in him. So he's dead. He's sick, and he's dead. So she said to Elijah, What do I have to do with you, O man of God? You have come to me to bring my iniquity to remembrance and to put my son to death. And Elijah said to her, Give me your son. Then he took him from her bosom and carried him up to the upper room where he was living and laid him on his own bed. And he called to the Lord and said, O Lord, my God, hast thou also brought calamity to the widow with whom I am staying by causing her son to die? Then he stretched himself upon the child three times and called to the Lord and said, O Lord, my God, I pray thee, let this child's life return to him. So he's dead. And the Lord heard the voice of Elijah and the life of the child returned to him and he revived. So he rose from the dead. And Elijah took the child and brought him down from the upper room into the house and gave him to his mother. And Elijah said, See, your son is alive. Then the woman said to Elijah, Now I know that you are a man of God and that the word of the Lord in your mouth is truth. Let's see now. Jesus is going to refer to this story that the Israelites cannot stand because there's all these widows in Israel. Why would Elijah go to a Gentile widow and do all this. They can't stand the story. So let's see what Jesus says. Luke 4, verse 25. Jesus is now going to relate this story to these people who are now saying, how in the world can you be the Messiah? You're Joseph the carpenter's son. They're Jewish, and they're beginning to reject him. Verse 25 of chapter 4 of Luke. But I say to you in truth, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah. When the sky was shut up for three years and six months, remember the great drought, when a great famine came over all the land, and yet Elijah was sent to none of them, wasn't sent to any of the widows in Israel, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon, so in Gentile territory, to a woman who was a widow. Jesus is saying, look, if you all don't give up your self-righteousness, you're not going to be saved. You're just not. And they cannot stand this story because Elijah, the great prophet of Israel, ministered only to the Gentile woman 
and not to the many Jewish widows. And he didn't because they were all worshiping pagan gods. They weren't worshiping the God of Israel. That's story one. Now he's going to hit them a second time. Before we read his summary story, let's go look at the real story. Go to 2 King. I should have told you to stay where you were. It's not that far from 1 Kings. Just go over to the right a little bit. Go over to 2 Kings 5. So this is another story. Let me set this up just a little bit. The two main characters in this story that we're going to read about. Now we're going to read about Elisha, S-H-A. Elisha is the successor prophet to Elijah. And if you want to see that, if you're taking notes, you can go look at 1 Kings 19, verses 15 through 16. Elisha is the successor, sort of the protege of Elijah. And we're also going to read about this guy named Naaman. He's captain of the army of the king of Syria. He's captain of the army. And we're going to read about the king of Syria. So this is, again, Gentile territory. You with me? Okay. This Naaman character He's captain of the army, he's not Jewish, and he's also afflicted with leprosy. In the Jewish culture, there's two strikes against him. He's Gentile, and he has leprosy. So he is unclean. God has struck him down with leprosy in their view because he's so wicked, and that's his punishment. He's a bad dude. All right, we got the characters? All right, let's read the story. Now Naaman, a captain of the army of the king of Syria, was a great man with his master, meaning the king, and highly respected because by him the Lord had given victory to Syria. The Jewish people had lost a battle to Naaman. The man was also a valiant warrior, but he was a leper. Now the Syrians had gone out in bands and had taken captive in one of the battles a little girl from the land of Israel. So this is a little Jewish girl. And she waited on Naaman's wife. And she said to her mistress, to Naaman's wife, I wish that my master, meaning Naaman, were with the prophet who is in Samaria. And she's talking about Elisha. Then he would cure him of his leprosy. And Naaman went in and told his master, meaning the king of Syria, saying, Thus and thus spoke the girl who is from the land of Israel. Then the king of Syria said, Go now, and I will send a letter to the king of Israel. And Naaman departed and took with him ten talents of silver, six thousand shekels of gold, and ten changes of clothes. So I guess he's planning on being there for a while. Verse 6. And he brought the letter to the king of Israel, saying, and this is what the letter said, And now, as this letter comes to you, behold, I have sent Naaman my servant to you, that you may cure him of his leprosy. And it came about, when the king of Israel read the letter, that he tore his clothes and said, Am I God to kill and to make alive, that this man is sending word to me to cure a man of his leprosy? But consider now and see how he is seeking a quarrel against me. So the king... He's saying, look, I don't have any power to heal people. And by the way, you're an enemy and you're a Gentile and you got leprosy and you're wicked. You know, are you here just to pick a fight with me? What's up? Anyway, the king of Israel didn't want to have anything to do with him. Verse 8, and it happened when Elisha, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his clothes, that he sent word to the king saying, why have you torn your clothes? Now let him come to me, and he shall know that there is a prophet in Israel. 
So Naaman came with his horses and his chariots, and he stood at the doorway of the house of Elisha. So he's at the doorway, all right? And watch, Elisha doesn't even come down to talk to him. Verse 10, and Elisha sent a messenger to him, saying, Go and wash in the Jordan seven times, and your flesh shall be restored to you, and you shall be clean. This really irritates Naaman. It's like, you know, I'm this big, you know, I'm captain of the army, and you won't even come down and talk to me. You send your little messenger. I came all the way here, and you want me to go wash seven times in the Jordan? It's like, you know, we got pretty nice rivers over where I came from. This is ridiculous. Okay, let's watch what he says. But Naaman was furious and went away and said, Behold, I thought, this is what he thinks, he, being Elijah, will surely come out to me and stand and call on the name of the Lord his God, remember the God of Israel, and wave his hand over the place and cure the leper, you know, do some magic stuff. He said, he didn't come out and come talk to me. Are not Abana and Farfar, the rivers of the Damascus, better than all the waters of Israel? Could I not wash in them and be clean? So he turned and went away in rage. He can't believe this. This is ridiculous. Now Naaman's servants are going to talk to him. Verse 13, then Naaman's servants came near and spoke to Naaman and said, my father, they call him father, had the prophet told you to do some great thing, would you not have done it? How much more then when he says to you, wash and be clean? So his servants are trying to convince him, look, just do what he says, you know, just try it. Just give it a try. So, verse 14, Naaman went down and dipped himself seven times in the Jordan, according to the word of the man of God, and his flesh was restored like the flesh of a little child, and he was clean instantaneously. You see that? Verse 15, when he returned to the man of God with all his company, and he came and stood before him, he's standing before Elisha, he said, Behold, now I know that there is no God in all the earth but in Israel, So let's go see how Jesus refers to this story, okay? Go back over to Luke chapter 4, and we left off at verse 27. So now Jesus is going to refer to this story. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of Elisha, the prophet, and none of them was cleansed but only Naaman the Syrian, the Gentile, the wicked Gentile, all right? And all in the synagogue were filled with rage as they heard these things. So they can't stand these stories. And this story is even more shocking than the first one. Because, as I said, Naaman, he has two strikes against him. He's a Gentile and he's a leper. And he's saying, you've got to be kidding. You're telling us that Naaman is better and should have more blessings than us as Jewish people? You've got to be kidding. This is just shocking to them. But Jesus is telling them that, look, you religious people are completely missing it. It's the people who recognize that they're sinful and that they have spiritual poverty. Those are the people that are going to be cleansed, and those are the people that are going to be saved, not you self-righteous people. And so we see they're in rage, verse 29. They rose up and cast him out of the city and led him to the brow of the hill on which their city had been built in order to throw him down the cliff. So now these proud people of Nazareth, they didn't humble themselves. They want to kill Jesus. They want to throw him down the hill off the cliff. But here's a miracle. Verse 30, but passing through their midst, he went away. So Jesus moves on. 
And he's leaving Nazareth, and now we see in verse 31, he came down to Capernaum. Why is he going down? Nazareth is about 1,200 feet above sea level. Capernaum is about 700 feet below sea level. So they're going downhill, okay? So he goes down to Capernaum, a city in Galilee. And again, what does he do? Just like we've been reading, he's teaching on the Sabbath days. In fact, Capernaum, Jesus now adopts as his missionary headquarters. This is where he's going to have his headquarters going forward until he then goes into Jerusalem. So he's teaching on the Sabbath, verse 32. And they were continually amazed at his teaching, for his message was with authority. So Jesus didn't preach like the other rabbis, where they would quote other rabbis. Jesus is teaching with authority, just like we saw up in verses 18 and 19. He is the authority. That's how he's teaching. I am the Messiah. It's my authority, and I have come to save people. And they're amazed by this. Doesn't mean they're saved, but they're amazed by it. Verse 33, And there was a man in the synagogue, possessed with the spirit of an unclean demon, Last time, if you weren't here, you'll have to listen to the recording. I spent some time talking about demons and Satan and how that all came about and how Satan was thrown out of heaven and took a third of the angels with him that are demons now. And I'll give you a little more on that. They all know what's going to happen to them. We're going to see that in a minute. They know who Jesus is. Demons know who Jesus is. They know what awaits them. They are going to be cast into the lake of fire with Satan forever. They know. Satan's mission right now on earth is to steal, kill, and destroy, deceive us, do anything they can do to try to keep people from believing in Jesus Christ and let them go down the tubes with them when they're all thrown in the lake of fire. And if we have time, I'll show you that in just a minute. Let's go back. Verse 33. Here's this man. He's possessed with a demon. And the demon cries out with a loud voice, Ha! What do we have to do with you, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. So he knows who he is. And he's saying, are you coming now? Is this when our time is the time up? You know, have you come to destroy us? Because they know where they're going to go and they know their fate. Let me just show you real quick. Matthew 25, 41. Let me just show you that. And then I'll show you a couple of other verses. Matthew 25, 41, they know this is coming. It says, Then he, being Jesus, will also say to those on his left, Depart from me, accursed ones, into the eternal fire which has been prepared for the devil and his angels. So they know where they're going. And let's just take a look real quick at Revelation. I'll show you where that comes from too. Revelation, last book in the Bible. Go over to Revelation 20. I'll show you a couple of things over there real quick. And then I'll continue on. Let's look at Revelation 20, verses 1 through 3. This is John writing. And he says, I saw an angel coming down from heaven, having the key of the abyss and a great chain in his hand. And he laid hold of the dragon, the serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan. And he bound him for a thousand years. This is just prior to the thousand year reign of Christ. And threw him into the abyss and shut it and sealed it over him so that he should not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were completed. After these things, he must be released for a short time. I won't read on, but he is released for a very short time. There's a very quick battle and it's over. You can see here in verse 8, 
They came out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth, to gather them together for war. They want a war and try to overthrow Israel and the kingdom. And the number of them is like sand of the seashore. So there's a lot of them. And they came up from the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints, which are the believers in the beloved city. And fire came down from heaven and devoured them. It wasn't a long battle. So the battle's over. And then verse 10, And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone, where the beast and the false prophet are also. They had been thrown in there previously. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. The end of the false kingdom. People who believe, well, when you die, you just die. Annihilation. I don't need to worry. No, this is pretty clear. Hell is you're tormented, separated from God, day and night, forever and ever. Let me just read the next couple of verses. I don't want to spend a lot of time on that today. That's not the point, but let's read on and so you know what happens at the end. I saw a great white throne. This is the great white throne judgment of all non-believers because believers have already been raptured and are with Jesus. So this is the people who are not believers. And he sat upon it and upon the presence earth and heaven have fled away. No place was found for them. This is Jesus judging now on the great white throne. And I saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne. And the books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged from the things which were written in the books according to their deeds. So there's a book of life. And believers' names are written in the book of life. And if your name's not in the book of life, which is the case for all of these people, these are the dead that were not believers that aren't with Jesus. So this is the great white throne judgment of non-believers. Name's not in the book of life. So now we go look at the book of your life. There are all these books that have your entire life. And you chose as a non-believer, rather than to allow Jesus to have paid your debt, you have chosen, I want to be judged by my works. That's what you want to be judged by. So we're going to open the books. We're going to look at your works. Let's see what happens. And the dead were judged from the things which were written in the books according to their deeds, just like they wanted. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead which were in them, and they were judged, every one of them, according to their deeds. That's what they wanted. They didn't want to have Jesus pay the penalty for their sins. They wanted to do it their own way, reject Jesus, and look what happens. And death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown in the lake of fire. So anybody that rejects Jesus, he doesn't go too well. They're gone into the lake of fire, separated from God forever. And people ask me sometimes, you know, I just don't believe that. I mean, how would a loving God send people to hell? I don't believe that. And I said, you know, I totally agree with you. A loving God wouldn't send anyone to hell. That's why he sent his son, to give you a way out. You have a choice. You can either accept the free gift and be in heaven forever with him with eternal life, or you choose, you want to be judged on your own. You want to go your own way. So God doesn't want it to be that way. He gave you a path. You choose that, and the outcome's not good as we see. Okay, let's go back over to Luke and let me finish up. So we've got this guy possessed by a demon. The demon is worried that maybe Jesus has already come to throw him into the lake of fire. He knows who Jesus is. Watch what happens, verse 35. And Jesus rebuked him, this demon, saying, be quiet and come out of him. 
And when the demon had thrown him down in their midst, he went out of him without doing him any harm. This demon possession, we're seeing a lot of it in the New Testament here while Jesus is around. While Jesus was in bodily form, human flesh on earth, it was riling up the demons. I mean, we see a lot of that in the New Testament. We continued to see it, not as much, but we still saw it even during the time of the apostles. We really don't see it much now. I'm not saying it couldn't happen. It seems like now Satan and his army are more just about deception. We can see them at work just by look at our culture. I mean, it's a mess. So they're at work. We'll see during the tribulation this will increase again. And we'll see demons indwelling their victims and controlling them supernaturally. I do find a lot of comfort in I'm not aware of any believers in Scripture that were ever possessed by demons. And how could that be? Because as believers, we've got the Holy Spirit living in us. And so I'll give you a couple of verses if you want to write them down. I won't take time to go look at them today. But uh, 2 Corinthians 6, 15 through 16, and Colossians 1, 13. We are the temple of the Holy Spirit as believers. We have the Holy Spirit living in us. And Scripture says, how can you have the Holy Spirit living with Satan? I mean, that just isn't going to happen. So I think that's why you don't see any believers that are possessed by demons. Jesus, by this act, you can see he didn't perform any ritual or do anything. He just commanded the demon to come out, and the demon came out. So Jesus has complete power and authority over the demons and over the supernatural realm of demons. They can't do anything And Satan can't do anything without God allowing it to happen. Verse 36. Let's continue on and I'll finish out here. And amazement came upon them all, and they began discussing with one another, saying, What is this message? For with authority and power, he, being Jesus, commands the unclean spirits, the demons, and they come out. So Jesus, they're seeing, has the power to get these demons out of people, but he's also trying to tell them he has the power to deliver sinners from the grasp of Satan and forgive them of their sins. Verse 37, And the report about him, Jesus, was getting out into every locality in the surrounding district. Jesus was out there. I mean, he was giving people the opportunity that if they would just believe, they would have the ability to claim Jesus's victory over Satan as well as the cross and have salvation and be in union with Jesus Christ into eternity. As we saw last time in verse 23 of chapter 4, they were asking for Jesus to give more signs and more miracles. So now Jesus, as we close out this chapter, he's going to show, as he just did, not only that he has power over the supernatural realm, being demons, but he also has power over the natural realm, being illnesses and death, and the eternal realm, because he can give eternal life to us as lost sinners. So let's close this out. Verse 38, and he rose and he left the synagogue and he entered Simon's home. This is Peter. His name before he was Peter was Simon. And now Simon's mother-in-law was suffering from a high fever, and they made a request of him on her behalf. By the way, when I was in Israel, there on the Sea of Galilee, there's some ruins there that many believe may have even been Peter's mother-in-law's house. Kind of interesting. I don't know if they are or not, but I know I was close just to think I was in the area where Jesus was with Peter. It's I encourage anyone, if you have the opportunity, it is an amazing experience. Even getting out on the Sea of Galilee, 
You can take these little boats and knowing that Jesus was walking on the water out there, it's unbelievable. It just brings all this to life. Anyway, he's at Peter's mother-in-law's house. She's suffering from a high fever. Verse 39, and Jesus standing over her, he rebuked the fever and it left her and she immediately arose and began to wait on them. So do you see this? This isn't like, okay, I'm going to bless you and in a week or two, hopefully you'll feel better. This is immediate. And then she gets up and starts serving them. It's immediate. Let me also say from time to time, I've heard people say, you know, the thing about Jesus and the apostles, they just didn't really care about women. Well, here's Jesus curing a woman. That's not true. Now, women in the Jewish culture back then were viewed as second-class citizens. There's no question about that. But Jesus loved everybody, and he had a lot of women that were in his disciple group. They weren't apostles, so Jesus loved women, and here he is curing Peter's mother-in-law. Verse 40, and while the sun was setting, okay, so what Dr. Luke is telling us is the Sabbath is coming to a close. So as the sun is setting on the Sabbath, remember he's been teaching in the synagogue, the sun's setting, so the Sabbath is over. Now people can start moving about again. That's what Dr. Luke's telling us here. All who had any sick with various diseases brought them to him and laying his hands on every one of them. You see that? Anybody who came to Jesus, he cured them, and he was healing them. Verse 41, And demons also were coming out of many, crying out and saying, You are the Son of God. And rebuking them, he would not allow them to speak, because they knew him to be the Christ. Jesus not only had the power to cast them out, but he had the power to keep them quiet. Now, why did he do that? Why wouldn't he want word getting out everywhere? He knew word of the miracles were going to get out. But he didn't want demons testifying for him. Because remember, eventually the Jewish religious leaders are going to say he gets his power from Satan. So the last thing he wanted was Satan's demons testifying on his behalf, so to speak. He wants them shutting up. He doesn't want any part of them. So that's what's going on there. Verse 42, and when day came, so he must have been working all night healing people, He departed and went to a lonely place, and the multitudes were searching for him and came to him and tried to keep him from going away from them. They want Jesus to stay there. But he said to them, I must preach the kingdom of God to the other cities also, for I was sent for this purpose. And he kept on preaching in the synagogues of Judea. So that's the entire nation of Israel, including Galilee. And Jesus was preaching that sinners could be delivered from Satan's kingdom of darkness through repentance and faith in him. That's what he was teaching. And so he healed people. It says all were coming to him. So he even healed unbelievers. And this was a sign that he was, in fact, God. He was the Messiah. So let me just summarize what we discussed today. As we saw in the two Old Testament stories there with Elijah and Elisha, The Holy Spirit can direct our ministry just like God directed those two prophets to go to certain places. We've just got to be in tune with the Holy Spirit and follow what the Holy Spirit is asking us to do even in our ministry. The Holy Spirit will direct us. We just need to listen for his prompting. When he tells us to speak to somebody, we need to speak up. We also saw that Jesus has authority over everything, even Satan and the demons. When we've got the Holy Spirit living inside of us, we've got tremendous power 
that if we can just tap on that when we're in difficult times or when we're trying to make a decision. We also shouldn't get discouraged when we're rejected. Look at what Jesus does. When he gets rejected, he just moves on. He keeps moving. We are to be out there planting seeds, but when we share the gospel with somebody and we get rejected, and this happens to me all the time, just realize you did what we're here to do. We planted the seeds and move on. Don't think you failed. Don't think, oh, I must have not said it the right way. If you're doing it with the power of the Holy Spirit, it's not you talking anyway, okay? It's the Holy Spirit. So just do what you're prompted to do and move on. And if they accept it, great. Keep going. And then after you share the gospel with them, help them pray a simple prayer and then help them find a church or a group so they can continue to grow. If you're rejected, just pray for them and move on. It wasn't your time to bring them to faith. Somebody else will do that later if it's meant to be. I'd say just finally, and this is the big one, just ask God to lead you. Where does he want you to go? You know, you look at these prophets that we read about in the Old Testament this morning. When God said go do something, they went and did it. And things happened. And so I just encourage you to just listen to the prompting of the Holy Spirit. I guess I had mentioned to the group earlier, about a week ago, somebody reached out to me, a female, and I'm sharing this not to bring glory to me, by the way. I'm just trying to show you the way the Holy Spirit works. And she came upon this podcast, and she had lots of questions, and she sent me some emails through my website, and I kept saying, gee, I'd love to visit with you. She didn't want to do that, and then she sent me some more questions, and I responded to that, but this time her phone number was there on Saturday morning, and I said, okay, that's interesting. So I called her, and I said, look, I don't know what's up, but somehow God's put us two together. I'm calling you. You Just hear me out, and I shared the gospel with her. She began crying, and we prayed a simple prayer, and she became a Christian, and I helped her find a church. And I'm sharing that with you because I'd prayed for her since the first email I'd gotten. And it's like, God, I'll keep responding. You tell me what you want me to do. And I've been praying for her. And then all of a sudden, there's her phone number. And I felt this prompting, call her. Now call her. You got her number. Sometimes I do that and they say, no, I'm good. I'm good. No, I don't need any of that. I'm good. And it's like, okay, okay. Well, if you change your mind, here's my number. Call me back. And I'm not sharing this with you guys to bring glory to me. It wasn't me at all. That was all done by the Holy Spirit. I'm sharing these things with you to encourage you that we get these things all the time in our life. I'm guilty of it, too. Sometimes I'm too busy. I don't want to be distracted. I've got too much going on. You know, I don't have time for that right now. I really do not look forward to standing before Jesus and seeing how many opportunities I missed that he gave me to share the gospel. I was too busy with something else. That's what I'm trying to encourage you, and I think we saw great models of that today. Be in tune with the Holy Spirit, and when you feel the prompting, just say something. The Holy Spirit will give you the words, but just say something. And if they reject you, don't get down about it. Just say, okay, hey, God, thanks for using me today. Give me the next one. I'm available. Questions, comments, thoughts, how do we apply this? Get a reminder for me of Jesus proclaiming the good news. He didn't just preach to them. He was doing ministry the whole time and healing people. Jesus knows how little importance like the physical healing of the people was, but their spiritual healing was so much more important. But he still was doing ministry. So he wasn't just standing on a corner, just preaching it down their throat. He was actively doing ministry. And that happened with Elijah and Elisha. Mm -hmm. They were doing ministry. 
And I was doing a study week or so ago on just the compassion of Jesus. And it is unbelievable when you actually look through the Gospels and the word compassion is used so much. He just cared for everyone. Now, did he get pretty firm with some of the religious leaders who were self-righteous? Yes. But people who came to him, if somebody came to him, he never said, no, no, I don't have time for you. Many times he healed people. It wasn't even about their faith or not. He hoped that through the miracles that they would come to faith, that the miracles were showing everyone who he really was. They were authenticating that he was the Messiah. But he cares about everybody, and he cares more about our healing from sin than even our physical infirmities. But he can use those physical infirmities to bring about tremendous change. There's a big message of faith here for me when God told Elijah, go live by the stream and the ravens will feed you. Elijah didn't go, what, the ra- come on, ravens? He said, cool, I'm going. I think about what would I do in that situation. And by the way, That was also difficult even for Jewish people because ravens were considered an unclean animal. I didn't mention that. I found it really interesting that the the little girl, the Jewish girl who was taken from her homeland, was the one to tell the commander, hey, go. I was kind of reading along, and that's it. That's all we hear about her. That's That's it. No name. Nothing. Isn't that cool? It's so cool. Little girl taken as a captive. Yeah. And she's the one that said, hey, I know this prophet. Why don't you go check out this prophet? I know he can heal you. And it just says little girl. And maybe they had met each other along the way. Don't know. She obviously knew. She'd probably seen the prophet. Okay. She knew about that. And, of course, she was waiting on Naaman's wife. She was a servant to his wife, so she would have been intimate with the family, I guess. Anyways, I just found that very interesting that she was the one who did it. And look at not only her faith, but the compassion she has. She's been captured, taken away from her hometown. She's a little girl, captured. She's being a slave. She's been put into service to serve his wife. And yet she has compassion for the head of the army who captured her family and brought them over there to wherever they were. You were talking about the daughter, the young girl. Think about the role of his wife playing in this too, telling him, sharing that information. Think about all the different roles that the wives have played throughout the Bible and speaking into the ears of these leaders. Right. And speaking truth in the right direction. Yep. How often do we... uh, as husbands and males forget that in our own lives. And I can tell you, God speaks through my wife all the time. I don't tell her. I don't want her to know. But <laughs> I won't include that in the recording in case she's listening. But uh, there are many, many times God speaks through her to me. Uh, same with my wife. No doubt. Yeah, that's good. Good discussion today. Thank you for joining us today. I'd love to hear from you. If you have any questions or comments, you can reach out to me at LarryO'Donnell.com. You can also sign up to receive this podcast and my weekly blog by sending a text to 56316, type Larry in the text box, and hit send. I hope you'll join us next time as we continue our study.